we've got that. And just so you know, first of all, we've got time. I can have a finished interview of up to 40 minutes. Um, oh, good. And, and is, is this going to be video too or just audio? No, I do this so that we can see each other and we can interact that way. I use oh, great. The audio. Great. Okay. Terrific. Because you look fine. Good. Okay. Uh, and just so you know, I want to start with Indian Point, get a little whole tech in there, um, then go on to COVID and the nuclear industry, and then go into the whole nukes in space thing that you've been doing lately. And I'm wondering if there are any other topics you want to specifically target yeah. in on. Well, 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 I think that what's very important is this. See this headline? <clears throat> Trump administration spearheads international push for nuclear power. Yeah. And, and I don't think most people, and that was at the, on the Daily Caller, which is the right-wing uh, counterpart, uh, Huffington, uh, to uh, the Drudge Report. And, uh, you know, that, that's two years into the administration. Uh, and most people, and with all, all the outrages of the Trump administration, people have not been following as closely as perhaps they should this leadership role in terms of, uh, of global nuclear. Okay, so what would be a way to set that one up? We can just lead with that one. If that's like yeah, your first... Yeah, because, because the, that really creates the framework of everything else, whether it's, um, uh, you know, Saudi, the sale of nukes to Saudi Arabia or, you know, uh, the NRC being even more than a rub, more rubber stamp than normal. I mean, it's just people have to really understand that this is such a... I mean, there's so many outrages with this uh, Trump administration uh, that it's hard to, uh, you know, focus on uh, a single one. But this is a big single one. Okay. Well, let me see, let me just give you something. Um, what can you tell us about the overall strategy and intention of the Trump administration regarding nuclear in the world? Would that be enough to get you started on it? Absolutely. And, and I, I could okay. just from this headline and suggest that people, uh, yeah, uh, if, if, you know, I don't if, want, okay, here's the thing. I don't want to lose the interview with the two of us chitting and chatting. Okay. I would much rather go into something that's much more of a format. If we need to break away and do some chit chat back and forth, that's okay. fine. I can edit that out, but I want to get into this. Okay. okay. So Carl Grossman, it is always a privilege and an honor to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. <laughs> it's an honor and a privilege to be with you, Libby. It really <laughs> is. I mean, you're, you are right there on the front line in terms of the, uh, the scourge. The, uh, it's an equivalent plague, frankly, a, a radioactive plague of, of, of COVID-19 uh, in terms of its, of its consequences. The, the plague of nuclear power. And the thing that I've been pointing out that's the same between nuclear and COVID is that they are invisible. They are a threat to health. We have no way to contain or control them yet. And the only thing that's different is the timeline. COVID is immediate. We can see it happening. Nuclear is happening over a longer arc of time, but it is not dissimilar. No, it's a, it's a killer. It's uh, nuclear power, uh, atomic energy is, uh, is deadly. It is lethal. It's, it's again, it's, it's radioactive COVID-19. Let's talk, now that I have you on the show, 
Let's talk about your perceptions about, first of all, the overall strategy and intention of the Trump administration regarding nuclear energy, not only in the United States, but in the world. Well, it's, it's in, in plain sight of what Trump and his, his band of scoundrels is the only word one could, could use, uh, what they're up to in terms of nuclear. I mean, I have in front of me here uh, and folks can just uh, uh, log on to, uh, I don't know if the URL is here, but it's the Daily Caller, which is the, the right-wing equivalent of, uh, oh, of, of Huffington Post. And uh, the headline here, it's, this is the middle of the Trump administration, uh, May 26, 2018, the Daily Caller. And the headline, it's a big story too, Trump administration spearheads international push for nuclear power. Again, Trump administration spearheads international push for nuclear power. Now, with all the dastardly things that Trump does, Trump and his scoundrels do on a daily basis, I mean, it's, it's hard to follow. I mean, every, every morning is a new uh, outrage. But this is so important that... Uh, Again, they're spearheading, they're orchestrating, uh, they're trying to uh, push globally uh, this, uh, this this lethal technology, which we all at this point should know about. I mean, uh, uh, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. We talk about every decade, a, a calamity, a catastrophe. Uh, we all have to understand that... Uh, this is not a technology that we can live with. I mean, literally, we, we can't live with this technology. And furthermore, in 2020, it's, it's talking about what's in plain sight. Safe, clean, green, renewable energy is here. There's no need for this. I mean, sometimes people have to uh, do dangerous things. This is not a dangerous thing that we have to do. We can... It, it was a dead-end technology from the beginning, just to promote, oh, the contracts and the jobs involving it. And I can get into the history. I've written a lot about this, of the Manhattan Project, the crash program to build nuclear weapons. And after the war, the folks involved and the, the corporations involved, principally General Electric and Westinghouse, try to figure out how we're going to perpetuate all these contracts, all these jobs. So they thought of, um, a lot of it was, in fact, most of it was mad science, uh, nuclear-powered airplanes and nuclear-powered uh, rockets. I spent a lot on, of time on, on, on that. And uh, the use of uh, oh, radioactive material to zap strawberries and potatoes. You could eat the strawberry if you wanted to in, in 20 years' time. And, and then this other scheme that they would use... Uh, in the early reactors that were built up at Hanford, up in the state of Washington, to produce plutonium for, for weapons. I mean, that was the Nagasaki bombs fuel, plutonium, uh, and virtually all nuclear weapons since uh, involved plutonium. Uh, in the course of producing the plutonium, there was a lot of heat. So these characters looking to uh, perpetuate a vested interest figured, hey, we can use that heat to boil water, to turn a turbine and generate electricity. And also, actually, the original scheme was to produce plutonium for weapons. There would be dual purpose 
to, to these reactors. Uh, so uh, we're talking here about a technology which, which is deadly, which is unnecessary. Uh, and, and, and we're talking about, we should be talking about more these days, all these, these wonderful new, I mean, I'm speaking to you from a little house, over 100 years old, in Sag Harbor, New York. It's a salt box, an old English model, uh, New England, I should say, not English, but a New England model with a big roof. And on that roof is 38 solar panels. And if I would walk outside now and uh, point to, to, to the meter, to the electric meter, you'd see it's going backwards most of the time because those photovoltaic panels are energizing this house. Well, there's also a couple of thermal panels that provide hot water uh, virtually all year round. It's amazing. And in March, you go down to the basement and you look at the thermometer on the, on the water tank and it's, it, it could be 50 outside, but the thermometer shows that it, uh, the water coming down from the roof at uh, 120. And I mean, it's, it's, it's 110. It's, it's, it's quite a, my little house actually is, is, is representative of what can be in terms of all this country, all this world, between solar and wind and appropriate hydro and geothermal and tidal power and wave power and on and on, we can have energy we can live with. Nevertheless, because of this vested interest behind atomic energy, there's been this push for decades and decades to, to ram nuclear power down our throats, to, to cause us to, to take the, the radioactive pill. And in the middle of it these days is, uh, I hate to use that word, Trump, but the Trump or the Trump or whatever you want to call the Trump administration. When you say that it has, when you say that the administration has been spearheading this move internationally, what are some of the steps that it has taken that perhaps have not hit our consciousness in the news? Well, the Saudi Arabia deal is, is big because they're in arranging uh, the sale of, uh, uh, of nuclear power. I mean, and Saudi Arabia needs nuclear power like a hole in the head. I mean, it has more oil than it knows what, at this point, knows what it, the cost of a barrel of oil now is, is, is zero. I mean, it's, uh, there's sunlight in, in the Middle East. In fact, there's sunlight all over this planet. Uh, that can easily power Saudi Arabia. Uh, in any case, the Trump administration uh, playing a proliferation game because you start, you start providing nuclear power plants to like countries like Saudi Arabia, and we could talk about the, uh, the prince of Saudi Arabia these days and uh, his moral or lack of moral qualities. I mean, what kind of person what kind of person that is. And what you're doing is really creating a situation that, well, it goes back to this phony, this baloney Atomist for Peace program. That, that was one of the schemes that, uh, well, in the 50s to sell this, uh, again, this vested interest, uh, this notion of, uh, of atomic energy. Uh, and uh, well, in 74, actually it was Canada provided a reactor to India and we, our then U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, 
trained the uh, the engineers in India and Adam is for peace. <laughs> Not for very long. Uh, in quick order, India had the bomb because it was provided with a nuclear power plant. Any country that has a nuclear power plant has the material, the plutonium, which is produced in any nuke, uh, hundreds of pounds, 300, 400 pounds a year of plutonium. The, the Nagasaki bomb had just 20 pounds of plutonium. It has the material, it has the plutonium and the trained personnel to, to build nuclear weapons. So here you have uh, the Trump administration uh, deeply involved in, uh, well, pushing, promoting proliferation. Uh, in terms of the domestic situation, I can go on and on about all the, the nuclear evils of the Trump administration. As bad as the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has been through the years, it's 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 you know, just been a rubber stamp for the for the for the nuclear industry. Uh, uh, NRC, uh, no real cares, you know, uh, nuclear regulatory commission, uh, and um, now it's it's worse. It's absolutely worse than ever. Just lowering standards or whatever the standards were. Uh, so. The bailouts of nuclear plants, the only two nuclear plants being constructed in the United States uh, right now, uh, the price of each, incidentally, is $13.5 billion. Uh, these, two, these two plants in Georgia. Uh, uh, Wall Street won't, won't, uh, won't give money for, uh, for nuclear. It knows how it... Well, financially, it makes no sense because those safe, clean, green, renewable technologies are, are cheaper than nuclear. It's, it's from a financial point of view, nuclear makes zero, zero sense. Trump administration up to its neck in bailing out that, that particular, the project that's going on right, right now and looking for more projects. I mean, one can go on and on and on. This, this, is, this is as bad as it gets in terms of, of, of a nuclear push. And it's, it's been bad through the years. So think Reagan administration, uh, think of the first Bush, the second Bush. But now with, uh, with, with Trump, uh, again, what, what he's looking to, and his administration has been looking to, to be the spearhead for a, an international push for nuclear power. I mean, if there's hesitance to build them in the United States, and there sure is, uh, peddle them overseas, uh, uh, have them being built in, in, in well, as, as I say, Saudi Arabia, and a list of countries that uh, may be, um, oh, oh, available because of, well, because of baloney pitches and, uh, and bribery. We do have a little bit of good news in, on the nuclear front here in this country, and that is that we're talking on May 1st, which is the day after Indian Point 2 on, it's on Long Island, isn't it? Or is it? No, it's in Buchanan, New York. It's 30 miles north of Times Square. Okay, so let me, let me just do and, this again. There's two, new, the Indian Point plants. Originally, there was Indian Point 1, which didn't even have an emergency cooling system and had to be closed. 
What was left was Indian Point 2. Well, okay, let, 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 let me get in so I've got a clean entry because you've got so much information that it just kind of spills over. So let me, fr okay. let me frame it a little bit. Okay, so let me start this one over again. We are talking on May 1st, which is the day after the Indian Point 2 nuclear reactor has been shut down for good. First of all, congratulations to you and any of the activists who worked on this because it's an important step. It's an important step. Give us a sense as to what this shutdown means. Well, the good news, and it's great news, because Indian Point is just uh, uh, less than 30 miles from, uh, from Manhattan. It's, it's right along the Hudson River, north of, of New York City. Uh, an accident, uh, and there's been so many mishaps and problems and accidents, uh, there's also an earthquake fault, uh, which exists uh, right near Indian Point 2 and its companion nuclear plant, Indian uh, Point 3. I mean, we're talking about 22 million people within a 50-mile zone. And re remember Fukushima, how the U.S. State Department told anybody, any American citizen within 50 miles from Fukushima to evacuate? Well, in the 50-mile zone of the Indian Point plants, I mean, this is the largest human concentration in the United States of America. It's New York City, it's Western Long Island, it's parts of New Jersey, it's Connecticut. So an accident, uh, Bob Pollard, who a uh, wonderful man, he used to be with the Union of Concerned Scientists, he actually coined the term that Indian Point was an accident waiting to happen. And, and what an accident it would be I mean, it, it, it would be another Chernobyl, it would be another Fukushima, affecting uh, even more people because there's so many people, and there would be no escape. Uh, they, we'd all get on the, the George Washington Bridge and, and, and try to race west. To New I mean, people would be trapped, people would be, people would, would, would die, lots of people would die. You know, that, that's why I say this is the radioactive equivalent nuclear power of COVID-19. So, with the shutdown of Indian Point 2, that certainly takes one nuclear reactor out of consideration, except for the spent fuel pool, which has mm. lots of radioactivity in it and will for a long time. What difference is this going to make in terms of, what am I going to say here? Um, what is going to be the impact of this closure in term? You've already spoken about what the lack of safety is. What is this going to do and what still needs to be done there to keep pushing forward with a safety perspective as opposed to what the hell am I trying to say here? Okay, let's start this one again. Um, With the closure of one of the two nuclear reactors that is on site, does this take the danger down by half? Is there still a considerable amount of danger there? And I understand that there is a gas pipeline that still runs next to the plant. How are these connected and what can we do to lessen the danger going forward? Well, Indian Point 3, and originally there was three nukes, Indian Point One didn't even have a basic emergency core cooling system and had to be closed. 
leaving us with Indian Point 2, which is now closed. Indian Point 3 is supposed to close next year. Uh, the, the liars for hire of the, uh, of the nuclear industry have been on the radio, and this has been going on for years here in the New York area, saying without Indian Point and the electricity it provides, we're screwed. Uh, again, uh, they, they, they lie for a business. Uh, New York State, and I live on Long Island, part of New York State, and every area of the United States, every area of the world can put together a different energy mix uh, in terms of safe, clean, green, renewable energy. Here in New York, what the push has been, solar power. And, uh, you know, New York seems, well, it's, it's in the Northeast. It's actually on the same latitude as Madrid. It's actually a pretty sunny place. Now, you get really upstate New York near Canada but there you have. Oh, okay, other- okay. Wait, 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 Carl. I'm getting a lot of breakup here. Hold on for a second. Sometimes if a plane goes overhead, it breaks it up. Just go back to the. You know, it's on the same latitude as Madrid. Yeah, it's on the same latitude of of sunny Madrid in Spain. Uh, uh, talking here, Long Island, New York. Uh, wind is 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 abundant. I mean, I'm a sailor. And in fact, my little house is just a, a city block from uh, Noyak Bay, and the wind is blowing all the time, or most all the time, uh, in the Atlantic, offshore New York, offshore Long Island. If the wind's not blowing, the sun is, is out. I mean, there's all other ways to, uh, to generate. And here in New York State, the plan is to utilize all those other ways to generate electricity instead of Indian Point. Uh, the plan is, I think it's 2030, which isn't that many years away. It's 10 years away to have, and I forgot the percentage, but it's a very large percentage of all the uh, electricity from New York generated by safe, green, so-called alternative sources. Mm-hmm. NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute, which, as we both know, is a PR mouthpiece for the nuclear industry, PR mouthpiece for nuclear energy, has been pushing a petition now that calls for Indian Point to continue operating. And they've been using all of the nuclear industry's false talking points, claiming that nuclear energy is pollution-free. And now they actually have the nerve to say that it could, that by not using nuclear, it could worsen the effects of COVID-19 because of pollution being generated with energy generation, blah, blah, blah. And they're claiming that on this petition, they have 5,000 signatures from groups including, and here I quote, environmentalists and climate activists. How seriously should we take this position and how should we frame it? It's, it's, it's just more baloney. I mean, every decade or so, uh, the nuclear industry and the, the nuclear establishment within government uh, puts together a new... Uh, a new line of baloney. I remember decades ago, it would be so cheap. It would be too cheap to meet a nuclear. And in recent years, it would be nuclear is great uh, as a, as a um, solution to uh, the global warming. What they fail, and they talk about how a nuclear plant doesn't emit greenhouse gases. What the liars for hire failed to mention is the nuclear cycle, the fuel cycle, the mining, the milling, the fuel enrichment, are heavily carbon intensive. 
I mean, a, a major, a major source, the nuclear fuel cycle of uh, of greenhouse gases. So, this is not a technology that could replace uh, coal and, and oil uh, because it uh, is it's free of greenhouse gases. And actually, nuclear plants themselves emit radioactive carbon. And then, of course, there's the need for waste storage for virtually forever because plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years. So that is something else that threatens to be carbon-intensive as well. Um, but talking about storage, there are two angles here. First is I'd like to find out your perspective on how COVID-19 has impacted on the nuclear industry, both what they are claiming and what they are trying to hide. I mean, they're claiming that, you know, they're the answer to co to carbon pollution, which is ridiculous. Last week, we had Kevin Camps on the show regarding the NRC blowing off the legal objections of Holtec um, building a so-called interim nuclear waste storage facility in New Mexico that would require the transport of highly of high-level radioactive nuclear waste through 45 states. And Kevin and I basically agree that the NRC was moving opportunistically while we've been distracted with the demands of this pandemic. What are some of the ways that you have seen COVID and its ability to either be a smokescreen or an enabler to the nuclear industry be employed by the nuclear industry? Well, it, in fact... The COVID-19 pandemic has caused a crisis, a full-scale crisis for the nuclear industry globally because you need people, you need human beings in those, in those machines to somehow manage them and keep the, uh, the nuclear reaction in check. And what, what's been occurring is in nuclear plants all over, well, all over the world, uh, COVID-19 has been spreading among those employees. I mean, here's a piece, uh, the Montgomery News, this is in Pennsylvania, headline, workers terrified at Limerick nuclear plant amid coronavirus. Uh, same sort of thing has been happening in, in, in Russia, uh, where, the, uh, let me see if I can find the piece quick. Okay. Uh, Just take, take a take a moment. Find it. This will all get edited out. Uh, let's just. Yeah. Now I, I cut it. Just wait one second. Let's see if I can find it quick. Mm -hmm. Oh come on, you. Stupid. You can find it slow. That's fine. I mean, what else have I got to do? <laughs> Let me stomach. there's a piece that I want to add in on Limerick. No, let me. I just changed the, the, the view. Some speaker view. Well, I, I can't find that, but I, I, let me make the transition this way. Um, 
top officials, in fact, in Russia, talking about the same problem, this concern of uh, coronavirus um, uh, spreading among uh, plant workers, and they're trying to keep those plant workers on site, not letting them, it's, it's a quarantine in, in, in place, but for how long, for how many hours? Uh, moreover, back to the United States, uh, here, here's a piece, uh, as pandemic rages, federal nuclear regulators put keeping reactors running ahead of public health and safety. Because of, of, of this spread of, of COVID-19 among reactor engineers, reactor operators, uh, all these nukes should be shut down right now. I mean, they, they, if they're talking about what they call a pause, this is the time to pause. In fact, it's a time to stop, to end, to terminate nu nuclear power because it's, it's, it's a clear demonstration about how dangerous, dangerous the, the, these machines are, uh, so easily crippled by, uh, uh, by a pandemic. One of the things that I found interesting is way back when I first started doing a weekly update on the COVID nuclear connection, at that point was when the Limerick article came out about them being terrified. That was the word that was in the headline and the story got picked up a lot. And I was at that point doing a rundown on all of the different nuclear facilities and how many COVID positive cases had shown up in each. And this is way back at the beginning of the refueling cycle at Limerick. So I did this roundup of all these different places and all the numbers. And within three days, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission put out a statement saying that they were no longer going to report on how many people were sick at any facility. And really, they've clamped down. We've heard about Vogel, but that's a construction site. That's not inside. So we don't know the nightmare that is going on. Also, they have, the NRC has changed their rules about how many hours workers can work, that they can work up to 12 to 16 hours a day. They can be worked 12 to 16 hours a day up to 86 hours per week and 14 days in a row without a break, which sounds an awful lot like slavery to me. If these highly skilled, important workers who are in a dangerous environment aren't allowed a rest, aren't allowed a respite, it sounds like they're not even allowed off premises. And what this speaks to is the fact that there is an unfolding and ever-growing nightmare inside these nuclear reactors that we are being prevented from learning about until and unless another whistleblower or set of whistleblowers comes forward and is able to get that information out to the outside world and to reporters. Yeah, it's, it's oh, Dr. John Goffman years ago stressed that nuclear power had to be 100% perfect. It, not 99, not 98%. It was so dangerous and so lethal to so many people that to, to, to do it, uh, there had to be 100% perfection. And there's no 100% perfection uh, on this planet, at least, uh, in this world at all. Uh, Dr. Goffman, who was an associate director at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, broke from the nuclear establishment, wrote a book uh, with Dr. T Arthur Tamplin, Poisoned Power. Hmm. 
That's what this is about. It's, it's, that was the title. This is about poisoned power. It's about uh, a technology, as I note, that rose uh, because of vested interest, not because of some advancement in technology. People were looking for money by GE Westinghouse selling these machines. Those engineers, those scientists were looking for for jobs and uh, uh, well, cushy places uh, economically for themselves. And that's what caused this, this horrid technology uh, to come upon us. And that's why, again, there should be a pause. There should be, beyond nuclear, that Kevin Camps is the, the most superlative organizer for, radioactive waste specialist for, and I'm on the board of Beyond Nuclear, and so I know Kevin's great work and the work of the other members of the staff of Beyond Nuclear. They've been calling for a shutdown during this, this period. But beyond that, what Beyond Nuclear, and it's a great group, and, and, and listeners might want to go to the website of beyondnuclear.org and see all they do. What Beyond Nuclear's mission is, is to eliminate, to end, not just a pause, to stop, to terminate nuclear power on Earth, and also the other side of the coin, to get rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, and again, there's this, like I explained the Indian situation, any country with a nuclear facility has the material, the plutonium and the personnel to build nuclear weapons. And maybe we'll make it through this generation with this carrot and stick approach, uh, you know, giving a, a carrot to a country that uh, does something in regard to proliferation, a little bits of something and a stick. If, But ultimately, particularly with the, the likes of the Trump administration, spreading nuclear power plants, spreading nuclear reactors, spreading nuclear technology through the world, honestly, we ain't going to make it. I mean, ultimately, your grandchildren and their grandchildren, uh, United Nations designate certain portions of the planet as nuclear-free zones. In other words, there should be no nuclear weapons in those zones, the seven areas that are so designated, Antarctica, South Pacific. In my view, if we're going to make it, if humanity is going to make it, if life is going to make it, uh, because we can't be uh, anthropomorphic here, the entire planet must be a nuclear-free zone. There should be no nuclear power. There should be no nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and then we'll make it if, if we don't do And then that this might sound terribly radical. I mean, how are you going to put the, uh, the genie back in the bottle? Uh, terribly radical. But frankly, trying this game of, uh, of carrot and stick, and uh, that's the more radical approach. That's the approach that doesn't work. As an example of the genie being able to be put back in the bottle, Go back to what happened after World War I. Because of, of, of the horror of chemical weapons, the, 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 the enormous deaths and horror deaths on the battlefield during World War I, after the war, the world came together and banned chemical weapons. I mean, it's not been perfect. There have been countries that have used chemical weapons, but basically, chemical weapons have become verboten. The genie was put back in the bottle. Humanity realized that uh, 
this invention of chemical weapons, this development of chemical weapons was just so horrible and so bad and it had to be eliminated and the same has to occur in regard to nuclear power. Not only on the planet are nukes a problem, but you have been teaming up regularly recently with Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Reactors in Space to talk about some of the threats we face that are moving ahead in terms of mining the skies, having weapons up there, using nuclear technology in space. Can you talk to some of the points? We did have an excerpt from a webinar, a Zoominar, that Bruce was on on last week's show. We took about 10 minutes of what he was talking about. But could you elaborate on what is going on up there that while we are concerned here down on Earth with having masks and gloves and living through our trip to the grocery store, there are other people who are planning on what to do for millennia to come up in space? Well, just quickly, how I got into this issue goes back to 1986. I broke the story in the Nation magazine about how the next mission of the Challenger involved a plutonium-fueled space probe. And if the Challenger hadn't blown up in January, but on that next mission date in May, I mean, you would have had plutonium uh, spread all through. I mean, you wouldn't want to go to Disney for a few hundred years. I mean, you talked about the toxicity of plutonium, you know, before. Uh, and then I, I, I got involved. I wrote a book called The Wrong Stuff about the use of nuclear in space. And, uh, and they've been, this isn't like the sky is falling, both in the US and in the Soviet and then Russian space programs involving nuclear, there have been accidents, serious accidents. 1964, a satellite with plutonium aboard didn't achieve orbit. Uh, it was the power source and the satellite came crashing down, broke up, disintegrated in the atmosphere, spreading plutonium all over the earth. Uh, Dr. Goffman, who I mentioned before, who went on to become a professor of, uh, of physics at uh, University of California, Berkeley, he long connected the uh, SNAP-9A accident, it was called, with a, a heightened level of cancer. Uh, lung cancer is the big problem. People breathe in a microscopic particle of, uh, of plutonium. So I wrote this book, The Wrong Stuff, and then I kept pursuing it. Why, why, why using nuclear in, in space, period? I mean, after actually the SNAP-9A accident, NASA began developing solar for its satellites. And now all the satellites are sponsored, powered by solar. It's like it's the International Space Station. So no need. The, the connection was a military connection. It was the other side of, 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 the, of the coin. Again, Star Wars, Reagan, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars, in the 1980s was predicated on, on battle platforms with hypervelocity guns, laser weapons, and particle beams, you know, serious, serious weapons, uh, which would be powered by nuclear reactors or super plutonium systems. That General James Abramson, who was the head of Star Wars at one point, uh, at a conference, he declared that without nuclear in space, we're going to have to have a long extension cord going to Earth, bringing up power. So nukes in space was just tied together with, with, with weapons in space. So I wrote a second book. Dr. Michio Kaku wrote the introduction to this one 
called Weapons in Space. I was involved in the formation of Bruce Gagnon's wonderful group, the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. I suggest listeners go to their website, space4peace.org. They do protests and they're the leading group in the world challenging this this uh, this madness, uh, the, the, the global network. But to jump ahead, now under Trump, we have the U.S. Space Force. In December 2019, I mean, this is an encore of Star Wars. Uh, Trump uh, signed the papers to uh, create the sixth branch of U.S. Armed Forces, a U.S. Space Force, a U.S. Space Force, as he declared, I mean, this is Trump, uh, I hate to use his words, but what he, de- what he declared, it, I mean, it's again in plain sight. It's not enough, said Trump, to have American presence in space. We have to have American dominance in space. The U.S., said Trump, and this is at the signing ceremony, must achieve the ultimate high ground of space. And in the military terms, uh, you're in, you take the high ground and you have control over what's below. And the, the notion through Star Wars... And now through the Space Forces, the U.S. would achieve dominance in space and from space be able, with laser weapons and hypervelocity guns and particle beams, and inevitably they'll be powered because, again, you can't put an extension cord to these uh, battle platforms up from Earth by nukes in space. You you would have nuclear in space. It's it's utter madness. And just, just most recently, this is March 2020, and I'm quoting from this is a website, The Drive, uh, how the Space Force has just uh, launched its first new offensive weapon. Offensive weapon. This isn't. This isn't in defense of anybody. It's just, And in fact, if you really want to go back to how this all started, after World War II, the U.S. brought these Nazi scientists, including Werner von Braun, over to to the United States on the Project Paperclip. And uh, Von Braun was the guy behind the, the Nazi uh, V-2 rocket. And they brought him ultimately to the Redstone Army Arsenal. And there, hundreds of these former Nazi scientists developed, uh, well, uh, the Redstone rocket was a, a duplicate in large measure, measure of the V-2. It was the first U.S. rocket able to carry a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, this was uh, Werner von Braun and his, his, his Nazi rocketeers, and the genesis, actually, of the, uh, the U.S. space military nuclear program. It goes back to those those Nazi, those hideous Nazi scientists who should have been tried for crimes against humanity, not given positions at uh, uh, at the Redstone uh, Arsenal in in, in Alabama. Uh, Meanwhile, and this is so important to understand, this flies in the face what Trump and earlier Reagan had done, uh, the, weaponize, the weaponizing of space, the turning of the heavens into, into a war zone, flies into this, in the face of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. It, in the 1960s, after Sputnik had been launched by the Soviets in the 50s, the U.S. led working with the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom, putting together a, uh, an international treaty, which has now been signed by virtually all nations on Earth, 
which declares that um, space is a global commons to be used for peaceful purposes. It bans weapons of mass destruction in space. And in, in recent decades, uh, and this goes through several administrations, our neighbor Canada, Russia, and China have worked to expand the Outer Space Treaty uh, to uh, enact what's called the Paros Treaty, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space Treaty. And that would not just ban weapons of mass destruction in space, it would ban all weapons in space. And guess what country has exercised its veto at the United Nations? And I've been to the UN and I've seen this. The United States, it's, it's shameful. My country, uh, time and again, when this comes up and there's China votes for it, Russia votes for it, Canada, of course, votes for it, country after country, and then the U.S. says, nope. And, and vetoes it. So the claim that the U.S. Space Force is necessary because Russia and China are up there militarily, Russia and China do not want to expand their national treasuries on, on weapons. It's very expensive. It's not like, you know, having a, a battle platform in space with a laser weapon. It's not like uh, uh, buying a Bradley fighting vehicle. We're talking about uh, millions and billions of and I, I, I've spoken to Chinese diplomats. I've, I've been to Russia and I've spoken to their officials. They don't want to do this. That's why they've been for the Paros Treaty. They just want to keep space for peace. Uh, but let me tell you, if the U.S. does this under Trump, as it's moving ahead and doing, Russia and China are going to be up there. They're not going to tolerate. They're not going to let this one country achieve dominance in space achieve the high ground, take the high ground, and from the high ground be able to control the planet below. I mean, they've had some experience, both countries, uh, in terms of uh, being invaded. And, uh, they're not going to go for this. They're going to be up there with weapons, too. And what a future that's going to be. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, who uh, one of the astronauts walked on the moon at, at a rally, uh, uh, the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, organized in Florida. He said, if there is going to be a war in space, it'll be the last and only war in space because it would be so devastating. It would be so calamitous. I mean, there'd be so much debris, and a lot of it radioactive debris because you know, these battle platforms, one would hit the other, falling to Earth, uh, the deaths, I mean, again, going back to COVID-19 and the monstrous loss of life it's causing, the deaths that war in space would cause. And in terms of, I mean, some people listening to this show might be like uh, Trekkies, you know, they, there'd be so much debris up there that humanity would not be able to, to, to get a rocket up and out and explore the universe and uh, and look for, uh, what, what was the, the motto in Star Trek, uh, other civilizations. I mean, everything would be completely screwed up. And, and, and again, to stop the U.S. Space Force is so critical. Uh, to stop what Trump has been doing is, is so important because once it's done, once the U.S. is up there with space weaponry, uh, again, other countries will follow. It'll be Russia and China and it'll be India, it'll be Pakistan and uh, 
the list will go on. Uh, there'll be no going back. And, and so people need to get involved with the global network, get involved actively in stopping this, uh, this madness. That leads me to a point of perspective, which is, yes, we're at what deserves to be a bigger pause button than it has been so far in terms of nuclear. But we're at a very unique time in human history right now. And given that there is time, we've got the internet, we perhaps have the chance to gain larger perspective. Where do we need to be focusing our attention now to make the greatest impact to turn back the various nuclear threats that are there? You just suggested being in contact for the nukes in space issue with space4peace.org, and that's the number four, space4peace.org, which is global network. What other steps do you think people need to be thinking about and acting on to use this time to make the biggest difference possible? Well, as a famous labor leader said over a century ago, organize, organize, and organize. Got to watch who you organize with. I would recommend, heartily recommend, Beyond Nuclear. Because Beyond Nuclear, it's based in Tacoma Park in Maryland, it's out of Washington, D.C., is this one important organization which connects the, uh, the obscenity of nuclear weapons, the uh, with the, the outrage of, of nuclear power and is, is looking to uh, free the world beyond nuclear, free the world of, of nuclear and, and to go beyond. So Beyond Nuclear is an excellent organization. Another organization, I was on the board of this organization for many years too, the Nuclear Information and Resource Service. And their website is nears.org. Good organization, Greenpeace. Is, is an excellent organization. And there's others, but some aren't so great. Some have been, uh, you think they're, they're okay, but they've kind of, they're not so okay. But if you stick to Beyond Nuclear, if you stick to NEARS, if you stick to, stick to, to Greenpeace, um, and there's others, there's, there's, there's smaller organizations all over this country, all over the world. Um, that you can get involved with. And again, the global network in terms of this global issue of, uh, of nukes in space and weapons in space, are you well up? But you gotta work on this. I mean, the vote in a few months is gonna be very important and that scoundrel Trump has to, Trump and his scoundrels and he being the chief scoundrel have to be thrown out. But uh, there's, there's, more, there's more to it. Uh, uh, p- people have to be active, they have to work to work very, um, we'll just skip here and and edit uh, the famous uh, Noam Chomsky uh, in a recent interview done by one of my journalism students where I teach journalism at SUNY College at Old Westbury was interviewed in recent weeks about all this. And he's he's saying, just the vote isn't enough. People have to actually, what, what Dr. Chomsky compared it to him, Dr. Chomsky, for anybody who doesn't know, is a, a famed uh, historian and linguist and uh, political analyst. People have to be active along the lines of, he's of the civil rights movement in the United States that marched and 
was involved in direct action. And in every way, in every way, ended the uh, the horror of, of, well, it didn't end the horror, but did so much to alter, to change, to stop much of the horror of racism in the United States. So what I suggest is, is, is people be active. And also in terms of media, me, media is very important here. The press is important. And you talk about, you know, the new technologies of media, and that's great. I mean, it's wonderful that people can go to YouTube and you can get unfiltered information and so forth. And there's some excellent, there's some excellent uh, websites. Uh, I, I, I write regularly for Counterpunch, which is just great. And on all these issues, Counterpunch is just, it's right there. It's, it's right there, spreading information, uh, providing, I mean, that, that, that's what the press is supposed to do. Uh, enable people to be aware of all these things and also to challenge power and counterpunches is right there. Nation of Change is another excellent, excellent website. Uh, Op-Ed News, another excellent website. Common Dreams, another excellent web. I mean, there's a bunch of them. And, uh, and of course, talking on the nuclear issue, there's this extraordinary woman who lives out in California named Libby Halivi. You gotta watch, you gotta listen to, you gotta you get, go to Libby Halivi and listen to what she and her guests have to say. Thank you for that, Carl. And <laughs> thank you for all of the decades of work that you have put in on this issue. I mean, if people want the trail of breadcrumbs as to follow as to how this industry happened and what it has done and the various outrages and stuff. They can look up your books and just read their way through them because it's clear, it's concise, it is footnoted, it is the truth, and it's nothing that gets taught in school. You have to and, look and, for this information. Yeah, and, and let me note, in terms of my website, if anybody would find it difficult to find, it's carlgrossman.com. And also, I, I have a, uh, I'm involved in a nonprofit TV operation now for 30 years called Enviro Video. And just go to envirovideo.com and you can watch online. In fact, just a couple of months ago, I did a, uh, a show on the Trump Space Force. You can watch the whole show, half an hour show. Or mentioned Kevin Camps. I did a half hour TV, in fact, two half hour in TV interviews with... Uh, with Kevin Camps, won the Trump nuclear push. There's hundreds of shows you can watch. So what I try to do in kind of every media means possible, books and radio, television, articles and so forth, is to get the information out because I think an aware public is key to, I mean, that's what democracy is predicated on. Uh, people who know what's happening and... Uh, are committed to changing things. That's what this audience is. That's what so many of them do. We're welcome to have other people join in with this. And Carl, your leadership and your information flow through the years has just been superb and reliable and something that we can use at all times. So don't go anywhere. So 
what I want to do now is thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's been, well, these are horrible subjects, but it's a pleasure to speak about them with you, Libby. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, that was certainly a panoramic worldview of everything, which is great, which is great because a couple of things. Um, first of all, I haven't had a chance to see it yet because the shows are just getting, you know, like my, my brain gets clogged. It takes me longer and longer to get them going right now because it's just, it's so overwhelming. Um, but I saw that Linda Gunter had a video up on something or another that I want to take a look at. And I interviewed Kevin last week and we, we then did a little chit chatting afterwards. I think the time is ripe for those of us who are involved in anti-nuclear communications to somehow pull together into a network, into our own echo chamber. Um, I've been doing a lot of training, I do a lot of training in the seminar world. And some of the stuff that I've been learning has been specifically about how to use social media, how to use Zoom far more effectively than we've been using it so far. And I want to talk about, I'm going to be contacting both Linda and Kevin, and you would you know, be a great person involved with this too. How can we coordinate and pull together? I mean, we're all out there doing our individual things, but somehow to have a network or, you know, and again, the term keeps coming to me, our own echo chambers so that we are stronger together than not. I don't know what this would look like. I don't know what it is, but it's a very strong impulse on my part. And certainly with what I'm learning, I've got another training at the end of this month. I've got a three-day training in, uh, in working with Zoom and making Zoom effective. Um, there have got to be better ways and stronger ways and more consistent and consolidated ways that we can support each other. I mean, I certainly, at this point, I, I don't know what's happened with NEARS. I don't get any stuff from them, whereas I get stuff from Beyond Nuclear week after week. I mean, multiple times in the course of a week. I get phenomenal material from them, and I'm always citing them. And, you know, and I love interviewing their people because, because the information is the best. Um, I mean, they're, they're just right at that cutting edge. And I don't know what. But I'd like to like have us put our minds together as to what this could be. What if we were to imagine the best possible communications interconnect that we might have with each other, what it might look like? And then once we get a vision of it, taking the steps to move it forward. Because sure. we'll be a lot stronger together than we will be separately. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anything you can do to help. You got it. Okay. So one other thing, I have my ninth anniversary show coming up in June and you kind of, you know, jumped the gun a little bit at the end, but if you could record, um, if you could just, you just say now, uh, a congratulations on ninth, you know, ninth anniversary and, uh, what the show means or who I am, anything at all like that, that would right. be wonderful. Sure. Sure. Be a pleasure. Go for it now. Oh, now? Yeah. Unless oh. you want to do it some other time. No, no. Let me do it now while, while, while we're recording. Um, 
congratulations, Libby Halevi, on nine productive, constructive, well, breakthrough years of providing people all over the world solid, factual, critical information about the, the dangers of, of nuclear power. <laughs> and, and, and anything you'd like to add there about, you know, my style or how I do it or whatever? Well, as a journalist all my life, all my professional life, I must say that Libby Halevi, who turned to journalism a little after, I mean, I started at like 18, uh, is as good as it gets. Libby is... Uh, is the is the Edward R. Murrow of anti-nuclear communications. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank sure. you. You know, there are weeks I walk around here going, is anybody listening? Is this making any sense? Is this doing anything? And it's taken me a long time to realize that it had, you know, I mean. And my good weeks, I have my not so good weeks, but um, well, thank you for as, that. As thank a you. former editor of mine here on Long Island used to say, it's the drip water effect. You know, if, 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 if on a sink the faucet drips, nothing happens immediately, but eventually, eventually the enamel gets worn away. The drips have an effect, and uh, you just have to keep pushing. And I have found in my work through the, through the decades, the effect doesn't come immediately. Like I'll be on an expose for nine months. And then suddenly one morning, this huge uh, sand mine, which I'm exposing, is shut down. Or, you know, it, it, it's, uh, or, or, or suddenly there's no shoreham. You know, it, it doesn't come like, you know, like with fireworks and all, but suddenly the Long Island Lightning Company today announced that it's, Abandoning its share of nuclear power plants, selling it for a dollar to them. 20 years after, work, 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 work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you just, you, you, uh, you, uh, you do it. You just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And uh, uh, I, I have found actually in terms of journalism that uh, half the crusades that I've done, I tell this to my students, uh, my big fight originally was stopping Robert Moses and building a highway on Fire Island. This is 1962. Uh, and it worked. And it became a national seashore. And I tell the kids that in my experience, half the time, and, and actually I learned this when I was a copy boy in Cleveland at Antioch College. I was at this, I didn't go, I intend to go to journalism. I thought I'd be a history professor. I mean, I know that because because it's hard to remember what happened in the past, but there was an Eagle Scout day in Queens and I had been paired with the president of Queens College. So obviously I wanted to become an academic, but I was a copy boy at this Cleveland press and above the entrance, this is so corny, was the motto, give light and the people will find their own way. And this is 1960. And there was these reporters, they didn't call them investigative reporters uh, then, um, but that's what they were. There's about eight or nine of them. And when I would get information from like, I, like alone in the city room at night, sometimes I had the night shift. 
And somebody would call about something happening in Shaker Heights. He gave it to the suburban desk, something happening in the city of Cleveland, the city desk. But if it was some horror story about danger or corruption, you gave it to that clutch of investigative reporters. And then I was a kid, you know, a kid from Brooklyn. And weeks later, then there on the front page of the Cleveland Press was from the notes I had taken and given to them the story. And days later, it was resolved. The problem was resolved. Not all the time, but about 50% of the time. So I decided uh, to, uh, well, take my girlfriend back to where we were from, New York. Because Cleveland was not a territory I knew. Uh, and head back east and become an investigative reporter. And half the time in all the work I've done over since 19, being a journalist, that's how many years? 62 to now, it's like 38 and 20. It's like almost 60 years. Um, half the time, you succeed. That's a great track record. You know, I you know, I, I'm, I'm one of the voices in the chorus supporting people, but I make a lot of connections behind the scenes. Right. You know, somebody will call me and I'll put them in touch with and over there. Right now I'm helping um, someone from Navajo Nation put together his own podcast because they desperately need the information to oh. flow out. Oh, yeah, no. But uh, that's becoming something. All of a sudden I have all these people contacting me and saying, how do I do a podcast? You do a podcast. How do I do that? And so I'm creating a program to sell to try and make some money during these times. So, you do, have you dealt with Anna Rondon at the... Uh, oh, Anna Rondon. She has been a huge fan of mine. Oh, she's she, great. Uh, she has actually... I was supposed to go out to Church Rock again this year uh, and do all kinds of things with Anna for three weeks from Church Rock leading up to Los Alamos and, you know, and all of that nonsense there, you know, from Trinity and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I was, I was going to be, and we hadn't quite figured out whether it was going to be one trip for the entire time or whether I was going to take two separate trips. Mm -hmm. And we were just in the process of sorting through that when COVID hit and everything went south. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, if there's anything positive in all of that, it's that at least the, you know, the 75th anniversary orgy of self-congratulations is not going to be taking place in person. Or if it is, it's all people who will be reinfecting each other and such a mess. Anyway, Carl, you have been incredibly generous with this information. You, you know, I'm still blushing from, uh, from what you said because yes. Edward R. Murrow is one of my idols. One of my, he, Oscar Hammerstein and Ray Bradbury are my three writing idols in three completely different ways. Great, great. So well, thank I, I you. I teach all about Murrow. I spend I teach all about Murrow. I, I, my, my, my investigative reporting class. I, you know, he's the father of investigative reporting on TV. And his mm -hmm. were terrible. In the 50s, Paley pushed him out because of his crusading. I, yeah. Um, because he wanted to run a successful network. He didn't want to be on the front lines politically and be under that kind of pressure. Well, yeah, but... Uh, you Pale, probably Pale, know more. Uh, he, it, it became a billion-dollar business. And, you know, when Paley was, what, what did he tell Murrah at one point? Every time I look at one of your shows, he says, Ed, I get cramps in my stomach. And then Murrow, uh, 
responded, that comes with the territory, Bill. And Bill was his great supporter in, in, in England, you know. No, mm-hmm. no I, I, uh, and, and Paley, not to in, insert this, but as a Jewish guy, Paley, you know, I, I, I do a speech on investigative reporting on Judaism. I can send it to you. And have- would you please? I would love to hear that. Yeah, let me send it to you right away. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is, there is this tie-in. I mean, it goes back to Isaiah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be very interested to, uh, you're going to send me an audio or, or a written version? A written version. The, the Thank you. That's much, be- much better for me. Okay. I, I retain much better that way. Okay, well, let me get, oh, wait, I know what I wanted to do. Hold on a second. Okay, here we've got it, and I need to, I'm going to be taking some screenshots. Oh, that's wrong one. And now let me do some with gallery view. <laughs> that's, that's my latest way to uh, get myself the keystone shot if I need one, rather than trying to find something online. Anyway, Carl, thank you so much for all of it. And, uh, and we'll be in touch. Great, dear. Love you, my dear. Take care. Be well. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.